Hey, sexy, beautiful, hangry, and horny peeps. This is Tony Flo Real, and thanks for tuning in to Hangry and Horny Podcasts. This show is sponsored by DropAnFBomb.com. They make delicious macadamia-based nut butters. They also have MCT oil and olive oil. Go to DropAnFBomb.com and use the promo code FLOWREAL, F-L-O-W-R-E-A-L, and that gives you 15% off your first order. They make these amazing to-go packets that enables us to just tear away and drop some amazing nut butter, some good smart fat fuel for our bodies uh, that doesn't bog us down or whenever we need a quick snack or a meal. Uh, this is the way to go. A lot of athletes use it and uh, just common folks too who want to get healthy fats into their diet. So go to dropanfbomb.com or fatbomb.com and use that promo code FLOWREAL, F-L-O-W-R-E-A-L, and get 15% off of your first order. And one of the things I love to do when I'm eating from the packet is uh, once I've squeezed out all the nut butters, I like to uh, take my two thumbs and put it in the hole and then basically tear the packet into uh in half so i like split it into two and then i obscenely lick the packet for the rest of the nut butter and sea salt that's lined up in there and yes that is super obscene and you'll probably get a lot of eyes on you you know but uh hey it's pretty damn sexy and it tastes amazing also check out magicflowbus.com We're having an event on July 21st and 22nd in Santa Cruz, California. And what we do is that we help people get into flow, uh, that state of mind that where you just feel amazing, you feel alive, and you often find yourself in awe of the performance that comes out of you. So we like to take the best of medicine and technology, art, and ancient practices and bring in experts and bring in an awesome community of people that are like-minded that are into bettering their lives and improving and uh, just having a great time so go to magicflowbus.com and check out our lineup of cool peeps that are part of our team and uh, would love to see you there so if you just go on to magicflowbus.com and put in your email address and if you're interested, we'll be sending you a application for the July 21st and 22nd event in Santa Cruz. So check out that. And yes, much apologies for this next episode in terms of the uh, possible sound quality. Um, my next guest is Dr. Harry McElroy. He's a integrative physician and uh, he takes the best of the West and Eastern medicine and helps people to optimize their life, to get in wellness and heal. And so we had this amazing conversation up on the rooftop of his, his place in San Francisco 
California on Petrero Hill. And so there was a lot of wind at some times and city noise. So please forgive me if uh, that is distracting. But uh, trust me, the conversation that Dr. Harry and I was amazing. And uh, we get into, uh, you know, the use of cannabis and psychedelics for therapeutic and healing purposes. And uh, I find that this episode is really timely considering the uh, amount of people that are struggling with mental health disorders. Um, you know, we lost uh, Anthony Bourdain and uh, many, many other uh, high profile people as a late. Uh, this is not new, but what's disturbing is the the sky rise or the the increase of um suicide rates over the years it's just um it's increasing rapidly and that's very disconcerting so um yeah dr harry basically goes into uh the therapeutic use of using cannabis for even pain in the body and then uh also mental health uh, relief and the use of uh, medically supervised and with trained uh, therapists using psychedelics and cannabis to help people heal. So this is also timely because uh, the author Michael Pollan just wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind. And this is basically his account of using uh plant medicines psychedelics for you know helping us improve our lives to improve our mental state and function and so you know this is now becoming uh heavily researched and becoming more and more mainstream so check out this episode with dr harry Mac mcelroy and uh yeah, just super grateful to have him on the show and his uh, and have uh, his precious time. And so enjoy this episode with Dr. Harry McElroy. Peace. What's up, Dr. Harry? Hi there, Tony Florio. <laughs> We're in San Francisco, California, man. Look at this view. We are on top of the world here in Potrero Hill, looking out over the city. Amazing, um, man. We got like Oakland over there, the Bay Bridge, downtown San Francisco. Over there, we got what? Bringing it up to like Russian Hill, and you can you can see the top of the Golden Gate over there, moving on up into Marin and Mount Tam, UCSF crazy it's, man it's fully yeah, panoramic the bridge probably over that hill is there yeah we got bernal back over there wow man it's like 360 it's up here 360 huh? <laughs> man so we just had like a podcast before the podcast we, we absolutely did we'll have to we'll have to see if we can dig some of the good pieces up again yeah i'm I sure we will start like popping up some uh triggers there but there we go. you know um so your background is a uh classically trained medical doctor 
Yeah. And then you just got into like psychedelics and cannabis. Like what what happened there? <laughs> well, it was it was it was a, it was a little bit of a of a different transition to that. But no, so I actually I grew up with a pretty medical background. My my dad and both my grandfathers were physicians, and I, I went to college. I think like a lot of kids who grew up and see their parents liking what they do, thinking that I I might do that. And uh, I went to UC Santa Cruz, and I, I did the first quarter of of all the prereqs, and then the next quarter I went to the library and started in the and got stuck in anthropology and thought that that looked a lot cooler than than the uh, than the chemistry courses and so um, I ended up uh, going into humanities and and actually doing a lot of organic farming when I was in college and graduating thinking that that's probably what I was going to do um, took a couple years off and then I actually went back to acupuncture school a little bit by the seat of my pants I don't have this like long history of, of uh, acupuncture um, interactions before going to school I grew up in southern Indiana there there wasn't any at that time there. Um, and then got done and worked for a while in New York. And then at that point decided to go back to school. And that's where I went back to the University of Arizona okay. um, Medical School in Tucson. I had met Andrew Weil, I think, in the mid-90s. And he's been a, a really significant mentor um, to me for, for basically since I was in my, in my teen years, The Natural Mind and some of his other seminal books. Um, and then, yeah, fast forward, that, that got me into coming out to the Bay Area again for residency. Um, and, you know, it really the transition, if, if anything, it was really around cannabis. I, I think when I was in residency, I was starting to have patients come in and saying, listen, I'm on, you know, 60 Vicodin a month for my knee pain. And I started using cannabis either through smoking or I started to put a salve on and like, you know what, I, I can cut back on my, on my Vicodin and like, that was, that was rare. That was very notable. Most people were out typically asking for more pain relief from the pharmaceuticals rather than less. And so I was just like, wow, you know, there's something here. And, and this was not new. I mean, cannabis, we already had the Prop 215 in California, the Compassionate Use Act. Mm. Um, at that time, the residency was, was, is, gets federal dollars and it was like a big no-no. We weren't really allowed to do it at all. Um, and then as more data came out as more patients were clearly getting benefit. Um, uh, someone in the in the public health department and, and higher up sort of made that transition that we could start to, as physicians there, um, make the recommendation. It's not a prescription, but a recommendation for um, medical cannabis. And that was kind of what started, you know, me on that journey of being able to link um, some things that I had access to, um, you know, growing up and, and certainly for personal development. But now all of a sudden it was starting to dovetail tail into what I could do professionally. Um, and really, I, I think we're at this, you know, this, this dawning of this golden age of plant-based medicine. Um, and it's, uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, so you said that uh, earlier in the conversation, it's a third wave. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, I think, and I, hopefully I get this right. I mean, I would say the first wave of, of psychedelic research, you know, after Albert Hoffman um, synthesized uh, LSD uh, in the late 30s and then took his famous bicycle trip sometime in, I think it was 42 or 43, um, I, we started to do more research. I mean, Sandoz at that time, that was the drug company that, that, um, that he was working for, basically sent out this this uh, all points bulletin to say that listen we've got something here we don't know what it is um, but if you and very loosely if you have any clinical need for it we'll send you some and so there was this whole wave of of physicians and therapists psychologists um, around the world starting to use it 
with with honestly really excellent efficacy. I mean, uh, everyone from some of the more notable ones were were Cary Grant. I think actually went through over sixty sessions with LSD and really credits him very publicly. Credits with him with um, you know being one of the most important um, uh, uh, interventions that he had in his life. Um, and it helped him for acting. Helped right? him with helped him with acting. Helped him, I think, essentially, and we'll probably talk more about that too. But really helped him to downregulate the ego state of consciousness. And I think I'm not an actor, but I think that that's probably a wonderful tool to be able to have, where you can really immerse yourself in the role. And, and at least that that's how he was crediting it. But the the 50s were incredibly robust with research really around the the world, right? Um, and it wasn't until you know, Timothy Leary is probably one of the more more famous um, uh, uh, people around in the early history of, of LSD and, and psilocybin. Um, and I think, you know, he, he certainly at this point, I think, doesn't have the best reputation because um, he, he thought it was so useful. He was looking at the research, seeing how um, wonderful it was for people, um, but really just wanted to take the lid off and essentially, you know, uh, as close to getting into the water for everybody as possible. And, and um, there was a lot of pushback. And I think for some good reasons with that, right? Um, yeah. uh, uh, and, and we can talk more about the recreational medical and how a lot of these plants sort of fall in between. And that can be, I think, a, a pretty tender, um, you know, tightrope to walk. Right. But yeah. um, essentially what happened with that is that sort of unroofed this, the tune-in, turn-on, drop-out, and the government really started to uh, to take hold of that. I think at one point, uh, 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 J. Edgar Hoover had, had pronounced him the most dangerous man in America. Mm. Um, and so that, that quickly led to, um, a lot of the research, um, you know, being taken away and, and essentially I think was probably a big part of, of it getting scheduled as a schedule okay. one, meaning no medical, um, benefit whatsoever. Um, and and then that so that would I would essentially say would be the 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 first wave. Oh, the first wave. Okay. The the second wave. Um, I'm probably I don't know if this is entirely right. So that was I think that you know the first part of it. The second wave maybe was more of the of the. Um, of the recreational aspect of it, right? And and when it became scheduled and there was no longer the medical utility, um, it still clearly didn't go away. Mm. What really happened, and, and this is where I think one of the main characters in this, Michael Pollan has wrote a wonderful book called How to Change Your Mind, and this really is outlined in there um, much more eloquently than I'll be able to, to recount it. But um, there started to be a couple players that had been around for a long time that really took very appropriate steps um, you know, the, the DEA and the FDA were, were different in the 90s than, than they were in the 60s. I mean, one of the things that Michael Pollan talks about is that was a whole generation of potential die-off, so to speak, of, of the people that were around. And so against it, you know, they were gone. And, and, you know, quite possibly some of the people that were running those organizations in the 90s had been around in the 60s and maybe had had some positive experiences. And so, you know, I think that the idea of, of the way in which they approached it, this was like, we're going to do this medically, we're going to have properly run well-designed studies um and here's all the benefit i mean we had i mean there were over a thousand studies you know more than that papers in the 50s and early 60s and so they could also point to that it was like this you know 
Forget about what happened in the 60s. What happened before? This was one of the most promising psychiatric medications that we had come across in a long time. So please allow us to be taking this seriously. And this this was really seated at Johns Hopkins with Bob Jesse and um, Roland Griffiths and Bill Richards, um, and really being able to to I, I think that's those studies started to take place in 98 or 99, um, and I think they've run over a thousand um, uh, patients through you know study participants through, um, that's typically around psilocybin, but, and having really good success rates. And I think importantly, doing it in such a manner and in such a container that they really have not had, um, uh, any, any recurrences of, of the quote unquote bad trip, right? I mean, people are, are really, it's, it's, uh, for the most part, been I think a very positive experience. They're doing, you know, there are studies designed around uh, end of life um, anxiety with terminal cancer patients, um, depression. They're working with alcoholism, cigarette smoking cessation, and interestingly, around the alcohol, um, the alcohol uh, uh, cessation. Bill W., who was the, one of the founders or the founder of, of AA, had actually credits, and this is this is in the public domain, credits his, um, uh, you know, at least supporting his sobriety with uh, a trip he had on Belladonna in the 1930s. And in the 50s, when he was exposed to a lot of this research, he was just like, maybe this is, should be a part of the AA experience. It's like we let, or at least let's do some research on this. I think that was fairly uh, quickly squashed by the board of Alcoholics Anonymous because they didn't want to have any association with, um, with, a psychedelic or with a drug in general, yeah, right? But with Bill, Bill Phillips, uh, I mean, excuse me, Bill Wilson, yeah. he, uh, he credited LSD as part of his recovery as well, right? I think so. It was definitely the, the Belladonna was the experience that he had, I think okay. in 34 or something that really sort of kicked that off. Um, but then he was, he was having this, and what's interesting too, it's like then when you look and, and dig into the whole 12 step program and the higher power, I mean, I think a lot of people could reflectively look back at that as a mystical experience, right? Yeah. It's like you're you're tapping into the divine, and um, I think that his experience with that, you know, wedded with or compared with what was going on in the '50s, he was just like, let's this maybe is a good idea, let's give it a try, um, and you know, subsequently we've in these in these more recent studies, we've actually have some good data that with alcohol cessation, like psilocybin specifically, um, is maybe a wonderful tool. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. um, it's exciting. So I think that sort of gets us up to the to the third wave of, of when we're actually doing these studies. Very well run, you know, starting at Johns Hopkins. There's now very robust studies with Tony Bossis at, at um, UC, not UCLA, at NYU. And then Dr. Charles Grobe, a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, has been running things for quite a while um, at UCLA and then centers um, all over the world. London being another hot point. So how did the the research begin again with the government interventions and the laws? Like how were institutions able to convince them to start researching to do things? it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Again, um, you know, it, it usually is is groupthink, and like the whole the whole community is often in charge of of, of larger cultural shifts. Sometimes there are individuals that have a lot um, of impact on that, and I think uh, you know specifically around the the resurgence of of good quality. Research research and really moving towards getting these substances on the path, on the timeline of, of, um, 
of uh, rescheduling so that they could be used um, in a medical setting. You know, one of the prime drivers who's very well known is Rick Doblin, who started uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, in 1986. Um, and uh, the other one, and we can talk about that timeline, and the other one is um, Bob Jesse, who really um, was an engineer. You know, I, I don't think he's doing that anymore, but, but um, who had had some experiences and recognized the potency. And also, these, these research studies weren't, you know, if you were looking for them from the 50s and 60s, they were there, right? It was just, I think they were so tainted, the taste of it, by what had happened um, in the 60s. And I think Timothy Leary did have a big part in that, right? That, um, that the interest around wasn't there, but they were always there for people that were willing to, to do the digging. And so, um, you know, from my understanding, Jesse just had a lot to do with recognizing the need and the potency and then and then reaching out right through being persistent and getting getting involved and having conversations with people that could make it happen and so um, uh, you know there was Bill Richards who has has uh, headed up more psilocybin um, studies and run more people through than probably anybody on the planet he was um, you know involved in the early early research in the 1960s and then um, and then continued actually after after um, it went away uh, at Harvard and even after it was scheduled you could still there were a few places and, and it was the Maryland Psychedelic Society, I might have that acronym a little bit wrong, were able to actually continue to do psilocybin research, you know, under the auspices of, of government-run or government-approved trials um, okay. up until 1977. Okay. And so Bob Jesse then basically, you know, that those last vestiges got Bill Richards involved. I think that's how he got introduced to, to Roland Griffiths, who um, is, you know, a, a, you know, a scientist and researcher, um, you know, very preeminent and had an excellent track record. And so they got people with great reputations that had essentially nothing to do um, with psychedelics, but recognized the the possibilities. And I think like most things in science, through very steady, you know, trotting and persistence and patience, we're able to get the trials up and running in 1999. That's great. And, And then, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, so there's like uh, so there was like this law that was created where it made it like schedule one, and then obviously it just turned into an underground thing because a lot of people who had the experience before knew that there was some benefits to it, and then Absolutely. the baby got thrown out with the bathwater, yeah. right? And so, yeah. but there's also some like downsides to not doing it correctly too. So, you know the the research is slowly happening, you know, um, legitly, but there's this huge like cultural revolution that had a momentum that was going. So underground, you still had like a bunch of artists, you had a bunch of people that were still taking it, including here in Silicon Valley, like Steve Jobs credits his experience with creating Apple from coming from LSD and even his connection with spirituality and the book autobiography of a yogi. Exactly. So all these things are happening, man. Like, um, you know, and then now back to like cannabis being legalized in certain states, you know, and then the benefits of not having uh, to take um, certain pharmaceutical addictive drugs like opiates, right? So... Um, go into that, man. Like, the- yeah, I think that. I mean, I think that you know, I prescribe pharmaceuticals. I, you know, I don't think drugs are bad. Um, 
I also recognize that uh, uh, any drug you put in your body is something we call xenobiotic. It was, you know, not of this planet. I mean, it's synthesized in, uh, of the planet in the sense that we're, we're making it from things here, but it's something that the body never saw, right? I mean, we didn't have um, any introduction to, uh, you know, SSRIs or, or a lot of the other medications that we use routinely, you know, prior to the 70s and 80s, right? I mean, they were capitalizing on receptor systems that we had in our body, but they're not it's not you know broccoli right these are these are things that um isolated we, right they're yeah. isolated and they really are things that the body hasn't had exposure with and that's one of the reasons why a lot of times when we take pharmaceuticals everybody doesn't have the same experience right and the side effect profile can be very different for people um and so I, I, again they have their place but i think if we have the opportunity you know again starting with food as the foundation exercise working on quality relationships, all these things, you know, the Wim Hof method, really working with um, keeping our body in, in, a, in a place of homeostasis through gentle interventions, I think is always step one, right? But then when we need something stronger, we have this long history and, and you know, it, it goes through these periods of exposure and prohibition. And, and that's not just in the West. I mean, I think that um, this is something that's, that's happened in a lot of places around the world. I mean, even cannabis where it, where it most likely came from the Himalayas is not something that's you know, legal in India, right? And so we do have these these sine waves of of openness and closure. Um, and so, you know, that's that's there. I think at the same time, we need to recognize that if we have these potent plants and that we uh, uh, approach them with the reverence and 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 from a medical standpoint, again, as a physician speaking from a medical perspective, that is a much safer intervention than than going through these much stronger, um, more potent, but also sometimes and very often more dangerous pharmaceuticals, right? And so almost from a harm reduction standpoint, you know, if we have the ability to utilize potent plant-based medicines, I, I think that that's a great place to start. Yeah. So, I mean, there's cases of like maybe uh, extreme cases where someone's suicidal. So like, for example, um, Anthony Bourdain, you know, just took mm -hmm. his own life. Yeah. And we don't know like what was going on behind that. But so in like his, his case, you had mentioned um, would a pharmaceutical like a SSRI would have his place in that or um, and then of course let's go into the sleep component how sure. a lot of these rock stars and entertainers aren't getting the sleep that they need because they're going through time zone differences messing up with their circadian rhythm absolutely and then also um, not being able to to fall asleep and then being overworked because they're on some like schedule to get a show done or something absolutely and I think that's important. It is not that we can't ask everything of, of this life and, and really push ourselves. I think that we do need to recognize a lot of what we're doing and that has become so commonplace and accepted is very new. Right. I mean, the exposure that we have to a lot of the um, electromagnetic um, frequencies and radiation, while I think is incredibly beneficial, we're here, we're, we're broadcasting, we use our cell phones. And I think there are a lot of, um, you know, we're not going to give that up, nor should we. But I think if we're not also recognizing that these are new things, right? I mean, we are exposing ourselves to very new ways of living that I think for a lot of us don't end up being that healthy, right? Sleep is a perfect example of, and we've got very well-documented data from the 1950s and early 60s that we were, most Americans on average, were sleeping an hour longer than they are now. Maybe that means something, maybe it doesn't, 
But I think when you look at so many of the problems that we have, the depression, the obesity, right? When we're not sleeping well, that throws off our hormones and, and, and it makes it a lot harder to be um, metabolically um, in an even keel. And so I think that we need to look at all these things and that really needs to be a part of, I mean, at least from my standpoint, a part of the evaluation, really getting into lifestyle and nutrition and sleep are really foundation. And if we're not doing those appropriately for each individual, everybody's different, then you know that's where we start to look at the pathology. We don't start you know with a pill, right? And I think that that's the thing that's so important. It's not that interventions and drugs and pharmaceuticals don't have their place, but they should kind of be at the end of a line, right? Once we've tried everything else, and that's just not the way that our system is set up. And I think that there are a lot of people suffering because of it. Yeah, especially these uh, night shift night shift workers. I mean, looking at like a veteran, they have to stay up. You yeah. know, they can't take a time out at war. You no got like <laughs> police officers, you got firefighters, you know, um, nurses, doctors. You guys go through this crazy internship where you don't get to sleep. Not Medical enough. errors are happening left and right, yeah. you know, for for that reason, you know. And I think that that's a great point. I mean, there are some things, and we were talking about this earlier, there are no timeouts in war. There are no timeouts in the middle of the night in an emergency department. We, we you know, there are times when we're going to have to do that. I think that that's when we start to get into this point, and the, the term I like to use is called mitigation, right? We're still going to have to do it, but how can we decrease its effect on us, right? And so, um, you know, if we're having to stay up all night, well, then let's definitely set that system up so that we can catch up as quickly as possible possible and as much as we can set things in 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 motion and create a foundation where we have to do that as little as possible right and so that's where good sleep hygiene absolutely good nutrition right where you're basically preparing yourself as well as you can for those times when you actually have to do something where you're pushing a little bit harder than you can 24 hours a day every day of the week right yeah and i think that that's for me that's the first step it's the acknowledgement that we don't need to change everything, but we need to change some things. What's cool is how did you get into this like open-mindedness? Like how did you get into understanding like, wait a minute, you're not, you're not taught this stuff in medical school. You're taught about how to like prescribe sure. drugs as safe as possible. Um, but yeah, how did you f- get into uh, understanding like, hey, we got to look at these other first steps for the the end of the line kind of thing? No, that's a great question. And it's certainly not a part of, of, of Western culture very much, right? It's not, it was, I grew up in Southern Indiana and had never heard anything about, you know, balance and, and, um, you know, living your life in a state of homeostasis. Chinese medical school. Absolutely. Like that was really, um, I mean, I think that, you know, I grew up playing a lot of sports. And so now what we call flow, I think at that time we called being in the zone. It was, it was this acknowledgement that these things were happening, but it wasn't in a structure or framework, I think, at least from my standpoint, to really be able to understand it. But but in Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, the tenets, um, you know, and which have been around for thousands of years, um, are really about staying in balance, right? And so, you know, if you've got excess of something, well, what can we do with acupuncture and herbs and lifestyles to basically balance that out, right? And the same thing, if there is a deficiency, what can we do to help bring that up and tonify? And these are concepts that are not part of, I think, Western culture in general, and certainly not a part of, of Western medicine. And so that's really what what set the stage, I think, for me. Um, and I think why it's so wonderful to work with natural, you know, natural-based medicine, whether it's Chinese medicine or naturopathic 
naturopathic medicine, really working with people that are, are recognizing if we build you up from the base, then a lot of these pathologies are never going to happen, right? It's really, it's really nurturing the roots rather than trimming the leaves. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you, uh, I mean, you come from like Indiana and uh, like the farm. So you, you had some natural exposures to farming, being connected to the land. But at the same time, it was like very like close-minded compared here at the West Coast, you know. So how did you end up in like uh, yeah. acupuncture school, oriental medicine on that side? So, I mean, I think at some point there are kernels in us probably from when we're born or when we're very young that things that sort of seed us. And I was definitely curious um, and like to explore. I, I There was a, a large wooded forest behind my house and, and my buddies and I spent a lot of time there growing up doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and I, I think ultimately... You know, I wanted to leave, um, and not because I had a bad. Ex- I had a wonderful time growing up in Indiana, but I also was was ready to explore. And I think I remember I was looking in college books, um, and there was this one line in one of them for the University of California in Santa Cruz that said, "If you're into Henry David Thoreau and the Grateful Dead, this is the place for you." <laughs> Which at that point, I don't think the mic drop term was around, but that's essentially what happened in my head. And um, and so I I ended up being fortunate enough. To to, to get in. And that really, um, you know, I can't underscore enough, I think, how, how much for me growing up, you know, where I, where I did, how, how transformative that was. And it was, I mean, it was honestly, I don't think that saying that it was a bit like going to a foreign country was, um, was initially was that much of an overstatement. You know, I mean, I remember talking to my uh, uh, roommate, who's still a good friend of mine, and I work with him uh, professionally. He's another acupuncturist, Jonah Larkin, and I was calling him up. And I remember my dad was in the room, and he was—he's uh, from Mendocino, California. And I, I called him up, had like a ten-minute conversation with him, and he's like, "You know, dude, I put on my three-two and dropped in, but the waves were..." He—he he like had this whole like he grew up surfing in California. I got done with it, the phone call. My dad said, "You know, what'd you think? How is he?" I was like. He sounds like a really nice guy. I didn't understand half of what he said, right? <laughs> I mean, in that really, that that first two or three months, I think, in Santa Cruz and was just such an indoctrination into beauty and new ideas. Um, but also, it was it was a little bit of a barn burner, like just sort of staying open. But also, um, it, there was a transition for sure. Yeah, yeah it was wonderful. That's cool. So looking back, like 2020, it's like you had this really cool path like that you've followed sure you know and you, you mentioned like dr andrew wild at mm-hmm. university of arizona yeah like one of the main people in yeah. medicine to talk about like psychedelics and their medicinal use and absolutely i mean he's he's he is i, I yeah brilliant is not an understatement i think when you talk about andrew Wild, he has been at the intersection of of so much history and again is incredibly smart also incredibly curious and, um, you know, created, I think, his his time in history, but it was also um, at a time where he was, I mean, he was at Harvard um, in the early 60s uh, when Timothy Leary was there and, and, and was Rob writing. Doss, yeah, Richard Albert. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And was writing, was writing on the Crimson Review um, at the same time that Michael Crichton was. I mean, there, I think that there was, there was, you know, a lot happening and, and, and um, you know, this is happening now. I mean, there are opportunities like this now. I 
think that I think that you know looking back at some of these timelines, it's almost like a Forrest Gump, right? There are some people that are just <laughs> in an intersection of history and have the capabilities to to create the opportunities. Um, but you know, he really, uh, I, 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 you know, he was at the at the beginning of so much of this, and not only as a leader and and an initial you know creator of of integrative medicine, certainly on a national front. But yeah, I mean, his his book, The Natural Mind, I read when I was in high school, and it was. Um, I mean, one of the most transformative um, books I've ever to this date read. And, and, and certainly, I mean, that was a node that set me on a certain path and, and um, um, was fortunate later um, in acupuncture school to actually meet him. And then um, was one of the reasons that I went to the University of Arizona um, for medical school. I was grew up thick as thieves with Western doctors. But after going to Santa Cruz and going to acupuncture school, I was terrified about going back to medical school and um, losing, I think, really, in a sense, losing myself. And so Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to uh, be around as much integrative medicine as possible. And he started his his, uh, fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. And so I was like, great, at least I'll be around it. The reality is, is medical school is is all about getting in front of a fire hose and, and opening it up and saying, ah, and so um, you know, you, you, it's, I don't think it's a willful indoctrination. There is so much information you have to learn to be able to be a, a good physician that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't do much other than, than learn what I needed to at the time. But, um, but yeah, he continues to be a guiding light for me. That's cool. How did you not get jaded by that system? And, you know, like with you and a lot of our, cohort sure. like colleague uh, yeah. medical doctor yep. friends um you guys had that like bedside manner you actually have the ability to listen you see a lot of doctors with the heavy duty ego and it's like did they go into it that way did they come out that way like what's going on like how did you able to maintain this sense sure i mean i think that i think that during that process of medical school, and I don't think what anybody tells you in medical school is that residency is a lot harder. <laughs> you can't conceive of it, or at least I couldn't. But, you know, I think that hopefully you're going into medicine because, um, I mean, it's hard to not like science, right? And that sort of path of discovery, but hopefully you're doing it to be able to be of service and help people. And so I think that if, if those two components stay active, then, um, you know, there are dark days, for sure. And, and, um, and, and residency certainly have them for me, but I think that, that holding on to that kernel of, of what you're able to going to do with it, um, is what allowed a lot of us to, I think, persevere, right. That, that, that knew going in that, that, that how they were going to practice when they got out, um, was going to be very different. Um, and, you know, reaching out, I mean, I had a great support network and, and, you know, really blessed with that. Um, and, and then, you know, just being excited about all the, I mean, it is, I mean, I love medicine. And, and what it has allowed me to do, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful every day. Yeah, yeah. But what's cool, too, is you, like, continue to learn. You're always taking courses, like uh, breathing courses, like Brian McKenzie's Art of Breath, some yep. Wim Hof stuff. You're looking at, like, all the technologies in the biohacking the space. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, you just always had that curiosity then, huh? Yeah, and San Francisco is a wonderful place to, to live from from that perspective, too. There's just so many um, interesting people doing incredible work. And, and um, you know, the ability to, to go and do something either on a weekend or even after work um, and really continue to stoke that fire um, is special, right? Um, 
And I don't know. I think that's ultimately, it's just like, why does everyone, I mean, I think that, I think that the main thing is, is when you have something inside of you that you really want to continue to foster, um, you know, we live in a country that for most of us, that, that's, that is, that's an opportunity that we can follow up on. Right. And so I I think understanding that's important, right. Not everybody has, um, that access. And then in this country, clearly not everybody has, um, the ability to do that too, based on, you know, their economic upbringing and their responsibilities, right? So I, I, that is something that I think about every day, right? And really feel as, as the responsibility of like, if you have this interest and you have this ability to follow through with that, um, you know, that's that's part of your dharma, that's part of your work. And so, um, you know, I, it's, it's something that, um, I mean, it's fun. Like I wouldn't do it if it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's something that I think um, I, can, I can, you know, hopefully give back to people, all the better. Yeah. It's cool. Let's segue back into uh, cannabis and psychedelics sure. and like what role has that played in your own life and and your patients? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, personally, um, you know, Andrew Weil writes about this so much. I mean, this idea that we don't all want different levels of consciousness, different states of consciousness, um, everybody wants to do that. This is why, I mean, I think his example um, that he's wrote about a lot was, you know, the three, four, five-year-old kid who likes to spin around until they get so dizzy they fall over, right? I mean, this search for different states of consciousness um, uh, not only can be something that just from an exploration standpoint is, is interesting and engaging, but it also gives us reference, right? We're, we're going somewhere else, and, and that gives us the ability to get back to where we started, right? And, and take that information from that journey with us. And so, I mean, I think one of the, the and they've been doing for thousands of years in India, breath work, right? Pranayama, the ability to change your, your consciousness and your, and your physiological state through something that you own that's internal, right? Um, has been something that, that people have been doing forever right yeah um, so we literally have our own pharmacy inside our bodies right 100 percent. okay creating endorphins like absolutely so I, I think that when you when you have that recognition right which a lot of a lot of folks here certainly do um then it becomes well that's one way to do it what are some other tools that can kind of key us into different different avenues and different venues and i think that um that's a lot of what the plant-based medicine has been historically in the amazon and, you know, I think that, that uh, every, every culture um, has had some relationship with plants, you know, changing their consciousness. Michael Pollan wrote about this beautifully in The Botany of Desire. Right, um, including animals. Absolutely. No, and there, there, I guess there's, there's history of, of showing that, that, that people would um, feed their hunting dogs small amounts of psilocybin <laughs> because then it would, like, open them up, you know, to really being on guard. There's evidence that it helps with your visual perception, right? So maybe you become a better hunter. I mean, yeah. I mean, and then there's the whole Terrence McKenna stoned ape theory, this idea that, that early hominids, early humans um, uh, accessed psychedelics, psilocybin, I think, being one of the main ones that he spoke about, that then led to these big transformations whether it be in technology in in cultural spreading right it's not right. something that historically there's not a fossil record for that but but i but like also it. like the doubling of the brain size around that time or something absolutely or, yeah. right around the neanderthals i mean a lot of this stuff is continuing to be you know reviewed and analyzed but this idea that having a state change um not only has has the opportunity to to um you know 
give you an experience in the moment, but then what you then do when you come back to your quote unquote ordinary state of consciousness, you know, then you can make changes from there. And so I think that, um, you know, the breathing is great and, and we all can access that. And I encourage everyone to develop some sort of breath work, certainly a meditation mindfulness practice, right? Um, I mean, when you, when you see what some people are able to do with, with, uh, meditation and fasting, I mean, it's psychedelic, right? Um, I think that moving forward, and again, in this new resurgence, we have the opportunity to do so many things with cannabis, right? Whether we're looking at THC or CBD and really, you know, dissecting, still working with whole plant medicine, but dissecting the cannabinoids, dissecting the terpenes, and then putting them together, um, you know, through how we're doing, working with different chemovars and different extraction processes, you know, we're able to work with someone and help with their anxiety. We're able to work with someone and help with their pain. We're able, there's good evidence that, that both THC and CBD have anti-cancer effects. Um, so we're able to open up this whole cornucopia of, of plant-based pharmacies and do so much. And, and I think that's the same thing with a lot of the more traditional psychedelics around mental wellness and, and depression. And, and um, it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. I think right now this, we, are, we are in a moment. Yeah, it definitely feels like, as you said, the third wave and then the renaissance as a result of all this, because all this all the great music, all the great art have sort of been influenced by some of these things, you know, like I'm sure there are some people that kind of had a muse in a flow state naturally, just being out in nature or surfing or whatever they're doing and they were able to create these sort of magical works of art. Um, But then there's also these tools that are like now starting to be available. Um, The issue I've seen is just it becomes like a trendy thing. Sure. So there's a lot of abuse going on with like uh, sort of fake shamans or people that taken it and they think they're expert at it and they could like guide people through it. You know, so I totally see that whole uh, responsible regulation with the government intervention. But at the same time, you do see... Um, a lot of people, I guess was what happened in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of like immature folks sure. who were experimenting and things gone like wrong, you know, and dangerous. So um, what, what are some of the abuse that's going sure. on with these kind of things and how can we make it more safe for people? Yeah, that's a great question because I think when we talk about, you know, a cultural container, I think that that's very important. A lot of the of the medications, whether it be psilocybin, which was, you know, originally introduced from the West from, from Oaxaca and Maria Sabina um, um, and Gordon Wasson, who was a, a banker from New York, actually had that experience. And really, I mean, that, that him going down to Mexico and then bringing that back really kicked off a tremendous amount of the interest in, in early studies. Um, he actually sent um, uh, mushrooms, to my understanding, to Albert Hoffman, who, who um, uh, synthesized LSD, who was then the first person to synthesize psilocin or synthetic psilo- uh, uh, psilocybin. And I, I think that um, we took these medicines, we found them in a cultural context, right? I mean, they didn't just, it was not a party drug in Oaxaca. Ayahuasca, to my understanding, was not a party drug in, in um, the Amazon. And not something that they did all the time, right? There was a whole cultural context around that. There's even evidence that the early Greeks had had an annual ceremony where there was, we don't know what it was, but there was something, um, a potent plant-based medicine that, that created this internal state change, right? So I think that's the first thing is that when we take it out of that cultural context and just unleash it onto the population, um, 
It's very unpredictable, right? I mean, I think there are people that, that never stopped having wonderful experience with psilocybin, um, you know, going out in nature, obviously in a safe way, not, not doing anything that would be um, uh, dangerous um, to them, but going out and having an experience um, in the wilderness and really being able to take that back with them. I think conversely, you know, if you are, are, are not in the appropriate set and setting, and I think those are the key words to, to um to tune into it's what mental set are you in where is your mind right and where where is your setting where are you doing this and i think that if that's not really um appropriately addressed it becomes very unpredictable right and i think one of the of the reasons why the psilocybin um and mdma research that you know we're now in phase three trials this summer with both of them um is so promising is they're very tightly controlling that right it's it's very reproducible um um everyone essentially having the same um, setting and then through pre-treatment really working with the set right really you know having having therapy before you're having these experiences so that everybody can have questions answered have an idea of what that experience is going to be like so then when they go and do it if they're psychedelically naive it's going to be overwhelming right but they're doing it in a container that feels safe and and really i mean to my knowledge it has been i mean uh you know the early data is unbelievably positive and also just this idea of a quote-unquote bad trip um isn't really coming up you know they're really able to to do it in such a way um that it's you know predictably and reliably um you know at, at least benign if not typically positive and i would say that was the biggest thing it's like you then take a high school kid, college kid who, you know, is maybe has a very disorganized life is maybe, you know, has some undertones of depression or another, um, um, uh, mood, um, uh, stability issue. And you're just like, here, take this. And, you know, you, you don't know where that's going to go. And I think that's where a lot of the, um, quote unquote bad trips, um, really came from. It was not having and addressing that appropriate set and setting. Right. And there is some values to, I mean, obviously you don't want to do it, have a bad trip in uh, a set setting that's sure. not optimal, but certainly bad trips do teach us lessons. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the thing. I mean, maybe that was, that was, I, I think the, the connotation around bad, bad trip maybe, um, was never really appropriate. Right. I mean, as long as, as long as people came out the other side, you know, physically, uh, intact, um, and, and hopefully and mentally breathing. as well and breathing, <laughs> like their vital signs are all, you know, are all, uh, stabilized. It is true. It's like having, having an experience that um, maybe had a, you know a dark quality to it can really give us insight into into what you know the underlying processes going inside uh, going on inside of our psyche. Um, yeah. I think that is and, and and if there's one thing that is very different now than from the '60s, it's this idea of integration, right? All of these studies are being conducted where there is a is a very um, involved pre-screening, right, and pre quote unquote treatment pre um, uh, evaluation. Uh, and yeah all of that yeah. with psychotherapy and then I know specifically for the psilocybin um, studies you know they they will go and have typically a six or, or seven hour session um, you know lying on a couch there's a very prescribed way in which they're doing this 
But then absolutely the next day they come back and, and go through this process of integration with the therapist um, so that it's not just like, oh, I had this, I had that, I don't know what it means. It's like, okay, here was my experience and let's talk about it and let's see how that can you know, be interwoven and integrated into my life. And I think that that's you know, uh, key. I don't think that any of these studies would be as successful as they, um, as the early data um, is showing without that. And that's something that, um, that is different. And, and I think that is the cultural context, right? That, that is the, the cultural context from a Western perspective that we're putting on this. And I think that's why it, they're so successful. You're saying like traditionally in all these other cultures and ancient cultures that they have actually had a process of integration, which the West didn't yeah. until like, you know, I mean, of course, through the 60s and 70s with some of the psychotherapists sure. that were actually Absolutely. using this on their own as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And- Absolutely. And so I think the, the good the good data and, and from some of the, the good early research, it was that. I mean, it was mostly um, therapists and psychiatrists that were administering it. And so they, you know, it was, they had that idea. That said, when you look at some of them, I mean, some of them, you know, it was it was. I, you know, one of the one of the studies I think that they did around addiction and they had really good early data in Canada. I think that the people weren't sure that that was really validated. That's oh, that wasn't a good quality study, and so they tried to reproduce that. I believe in America, but certainly at another site, and so they were giving LSD to people, and I think it was for um, alcoholism, but they were strapping them down, like they were restraining them. Oh, <laughs> so that, that that is not an appropriate setting, yeah. and so consequently people didn't have the the same positive outcomes and so then it was like oh see maybe this doesn't work right i mean so so having proper study design and and you know and with people that are knowledgeable is is you know incredibly important that knowledge has been something that they've created within the scientific framework in the last 50 or 60 years where something like ayahuasca something like psilocybin um you know that 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 cultural container was created over thousands of years right and so it's implicit in the experience so like what's what's going on with uh these plant medicines and psychedelics like how how are they actually working how is it like changing people's perspective on life and then making them more like mature and integrative human beings sure that's a that's a great question and 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 partly the million dollar question i think that that's something that um that a lot of the scientists and researchers are are really um working on something that i'm trying to you know study and and um surround myself um with that knowledge as much as possible i think one of the one of the uh you know initial theories that they've really proposed because i think what's important to, to note is that not only when when we're having success rates like with psilocybin and depression psilocybin and smoking cessation right mdma and ptsd um which which the early data is is really pretty phenomenal i mean much much better the the data on psilocybin and and depression um the the is so much better than than ssris right i mean when when the when the when the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors came on the market i think it was in the early 90s you know they and we know this right they can be helpful for some people but they barely beat placebo right they were they were and when you when you set them next to good psychotherapy and and regular cardiovascular exercise it's kind of a washout that's why it's good to do all three sometimes together um but it was not that impressive whereas the early data with the psilocybin and the MDMA, 
it's like instead of you know just beating placebo at 51 or 52 percent i mean it's 80 percent right i mean they they uh the the psilocybin um uh recurrence when when they're working with depression and people are getting better i mean the one year recurrence rate i mean the success rate is like 70 80 percent i don't know exactly what the what the percentages are but it's incredibly high it is not it is not just a little bit and i think that's one of the things that's allowing these studies to continue and and have more studies and more study sites is that the the data looks wonderful right um and I think the other aspect of, so specifically pharmacologically how they're working, I think that was the question, is I don't think we entirely know, but, but what is so um, incredible about them, again, is that, that they're having one, two, maybe three sessions, and that's it, right? I mean, that, that is the entire, entirety of it. It's not, here's a pill, take it every day for the rest of your life, right? It's really something happening in, in the moment, oftentimes after one experience. And so then uh, I think one of, the, one of the most prominent theories right now is something about the default mode network. And the, the default mode network um, is, is a number of parts of the brain that work in conjunction with each, other, with each other that are basically most active. The default mode is most active when we're daydreaming, when we're thinking about our life, when we're thinking about you know, what we're going to do tomorrow. Um, and it becomes less active when we are um, in flow, right? When we are in the moment and, and whether that be something that's stressful, right? Or something that that is just, you know, like I know you're doing the, the, the kettlebell partner passing. That absolutely takes being in flow so that not only can you do it, but so that it's safe and effective. Um, and Even so, though we're throwing cannonballs And you're throwing other. cannonballs, right? I mean, I've <laughs> seen those videos it's incredible i can't wait to see where you guys take that um mm. i mean the the therapeutic aspects the physical aspects are just incredible it's really uh, it's beautiful to watch that evolve um but i think that um there is this idea that um uh, that default mode, when it is down-regulated, it really, we're stepping out of that ego consciousness, right? And when you're in, in flow, or like I said, I used to play a lot of tennis, when you're in the zone, is what we called it when I was younger, once you started thinking about being in the zone, you were out of the zone, right? And so there's this idea of, of the default mode down-regulating, right? Um, and, and what happens when someone encounters a psychedelic that is such a profound one of the words to describe it as a conversion experience a con, uh, such a profound experience that the, the ego just gets washed away right and so then we're given the opportunity and again this is the importance of integration of having this experience where you're just like well what what why am i continuing to drink alcohol when I know it's so damaging to me? Why am I continuing to smoke cigarettes when I know that this is a dirty habit and, and, and isn't, isn't really serving me, right? And I think it's the same thing with depression. I mean, to be depressed, for, for most people that suffer from it, it implies an ego, right? It is, why is this happening to me, having regrets about the past, right? And so if we're able to kind of step that out, right? Step out of that ego state of consciousness. It then gives us the opportunity of when we come back into it to say, oh, maybe there's a choice here, right? Maybe we can move forward and, and change things and, and, and be different in our relationships. And that's where I think the integration is so integral and critical that it gives us the opportunity um, that, that, that the default mode network, when it's downregulated and we have this moment of choice to some extent, for lack of a better word, well, then we can move forward and make healthier choices. And I, I think that 
We don't know. I think this is one of the best theories that I've I've heard of. I work with um, I work with neurofeedback in my practice in San Francisco, and I've seen some incredible results. Um, we are you know at the dawn of this new age of neuroscientists, neuroscience, where we are learning so much and also recognizing that there is so much still to learn. Yeah, so true. Because I had a conversation with Dr. Allison uh, Maddock, mm-hmm. who's a neuroscientist at yeah. Stanford, and. She was like, yeah, we, we're only limited by the tools that we have. And so even with these fMRI machines yeah. and able to see things, it's still rudimentary. Like they're still trying to figure out like how the brain actually works yeah. and how consciousness, is it a local thing? Is it a non-local thing? Like are we just a bunch of antennas that pick us signals just like our cell phones do? Yeah. Or, or are we in a virtual simulation? And the thing with, I guess, psychedelics is that it gives you like a glimpse that there's possibly these other dimensions that certain animals may have access to. Mm-hmm. Obviously, scientific instruments are able to pick up these signals yeah. that we can't see. It's all around us. Imagine if we could actually see all that stuff going on right now. It'd be like, whoa, that's psychedelic in itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that, that is um, uh, one of the things that, that they say that the reason that we have the default mode and the ego, it's almost like, what was the term that they use? It, it is like a reducing valve on on the world, right? There is so much to take in. There is most likely utility of having, uh, uh, you know, a filter running in the background that allows us to, you know, consolidate experience. The problem is, is when we get stuck in that 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 place of consolidation and start to believe that we are these experiences, um, then then we're also very much bound by them, right? right and like so the, I, the ego identity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things with having, you know, a conversion experience, whether it be a near di- near death experience, whether it be a psychedelic experience, um, or a flow experience, or a flow experience, or a sexual experience Absolutely. where you have ecstasy, or and you step outside, yeah. and that allows you to then, when you step back in, I think to have choice. And if we're never, you know, kind of rattling the cage with whatever, however we're going to do that, if we're never doing that, then we're stuck in this default mode, right? And and we. Um, really are living in my opinion this you know illusory uh concept of the self and i think that um you know again i don't think that psychedelics are the answers i I think they're a tool um but i think that they're a wonderful way um for people to um at least in a safe manner engage in this process right and so you know go out and play go and develop a breathing practice i think everyone um, you know, should have at least 10 minutes of breathing and mindfulness a day, right? We're, we're really opening up that access point of, of not only um, getting out of the ego state of consciousness, there's always a sense of, uh, there's also a sense of community with that. This is shared experience, right? And I think that when you were talking about, um, when you were talking about, uh, you know, where does consciousness reside? Uh, you know, there is no proof that it resides, you know, that, that, that you reside inside your head, right? And I know that sounds really out there and wild, but at the same time, you know, nobody can say, oh, this, this is where consciousness resides, right? And so I think that, you know, being humble and having and, and moving through life with humility and, and, um, and uh, you know, curiosity is, is, is a necessity. Yeah, there's obviously so many 
phenomenons going on, right? Like whether it's conscious, unconscious, the body's running itself at the moment. Yeah. You know, when we're in flow, it's almost like the body's doing everything and you're observing this and yeah. all. And then, you know, you have these, for example, uh, suffering moments mm -hmm. that seem to also be psychedelic or a way to Absolutely. put things in context and have contrast. And it's what being human's all about, right? And so, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, I want to be in flow all the time. I want to be in these high states so I can see the, the lure and the seduction of taking psychedelics or being drunk or sure. or being these like altered states. But, you know, it's it's not um, it's not what it's about. So obviously, you could just go in and lobotomize it. It's like sure. default uh, mode network, yeah. mode network. Right. Yeah. So. Um, obviously, you know, with the understanding of uh, anthropology and, sure. uh, and I guess human human evolution, sure. it's there for a reason. So we don't want to like completely shut it out. Like no. we we want, or else we'll just have like no identity, and, and that's just like a, I guess, in uh, psychology or psychiatric uh, studies. Sure. Um, it's like totally disassociating because right. you're like not now you're like pretty numb to the world, but you think you're enlightened. Who is me? Where am I? Right. Yeah. I mean, when, when we have no anchor to to, you know, everyday consciousness, I, 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 I think that it's very hard to be able to bring the gifts that we can experience in these different um, altered states of consciousness back into our everyday life. And, you know, I think for me, you know, this whole this whole search for purpose and meaning and mission, I think, is incredibly important. I mean, I I I absolutely enjoy exploring physically mentally all all sorts of different places right but i think too it's always with this understanding of how can i bring this back to quote-unquote ordinary um uh states of consciousness and reality and and help other people right i mean i think you know for me, it's if you're not gaining this knowledge so that it can help, um, you know, of course, enrich your life, but also enrich the people in your life. And and based on what kind of tools you have to help people to enrich your ability to do that, then for me, then it becomes, you know, something that's very masturbatory, right? You're, you're just you're just sort of it's all about pleasuring yourself, which I, I, I it's, it's not where I why I'm doing this or where I'm coming from. How did you come to that understanding yourself? I think that, um, you know, I think that all of us suffer to varying degrees. And I think when, um, when, um, I, you know, if you have a sensitivity and I would say that maybe that was something that, that, um, was not special, but I think that maybe I, I was I, growing up, a, a redhead, uh, in Southern Indiana and becoming a vegetarian at 13. Um, you, you, uh, and not to try to be different, but I mean, I think all of us, like you have to, you have to honor that beat inside of you. Um, but I think also, you know, recognizing that, um, that, that we all suffer. And if there are, are ways that, um, we can help, um, not only, and I think selfishly you start with trying to end your own suffering um, but then be able to help other people you know walk through that we're all doing this together right we're all doing this together some of us are are either blessed by a lucky birth right i mean we're born in in, in america some of us are are blessed by other things um and and then hopefully we work hard right and then with that gained information and knowledge um i i guess I don't know if I came to that. I mean, to me, that's such an obvious place, right? You you are going to try to, you know, make the world more sustainable, make relationships more sustainable, and help people that, that you know, effectively weren't as lucky as you are. So, I don't know. I, I, that was... 
that's what I grew up yeah, around. Yeah, so I mean, in the case of other people that are like sort of, you know, quote unquote unconscious that are just thinking about the bottom line and like destroying the, the environment, sure. destroying themselves, just pretty much trying to gain, trying to dominate. It's a course yeah. of history of yeah. wars. Yeah. You know, some, um, some of our politicians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. it's like, what what do we do for them? I mean, there's obviously maybe. Uh, were they born this way? Were they traumatized? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people are gaining access access to some of these yeah. tools and using it using it for a performance context. Where sure. it's all about like the you know how much uh, limitless they can get right. you know and be like superhuman so to speak. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that you remain open and try to further the conversation, right? I mean, I think that you always um, have to meet people where they're at. I mean, I, I am, you know, my consciousness is not today what it was um, ten or fifteen years ago, and and hopefully, you know, there will be things in in my consciousness. I mean, not hopefully. I know there are a lot of things that I need to continue to work on so that I can be more open, more loving, more available, right? And so. Everybody is, in my belief, anybody is on a different place in that path, and and you know from a from a from a you know an Indian Hindu perspective, I mean that is you know your karma, you know where you're born, and, and then the work you do throughout your life can can have an effect on that. Um, I think ultimately you you know love and acceptance. I think that you um, try to help people in the way that you can, right, and recognize um, that some people are going to be open and receptive to that, and and some people are not. And I want to be very clear. I mean. I, I am I mean one of the things that drives me is the knowledge that that I am I am not seeing um, uh, some things I think um, as openly and with the same insight as as I know that's there right and so it's continuing to eat well and and provide uh, good access of, of healthy food to as many people as possible it's having a mindfulness practice right and and recognizing that you know at the end of the day all you can do is your best right. um, and 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 help to educate you know yourself but also those in in that you are exposed to yeah i guess what i'm saying too is that you know there's maybe some like sociopaths or psychopaths like yeah i can see where like and and they're like functional too right right? which is really scary and so um a lot of them hold like uh, high positions right and so they use a lot of like fear tactics on people or like power and control yeah I could see where, you know, jokingly, like, Timothy Leary is like, hey, let's dose the water system, right. you know, and get everybody, like, high. The ultimate so that, disruptor. Like, <laughs> just completely, like, shift the, the paradigm around the world. But um, obviously, that's not the answer, right? But, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek, like, you sure. can see, like, for those people that are sociopaths and psychopaths that are functional, you know, that are holding these powerful positions, like... You know, it's like when I was thinking, do they just, we let them die off like dinosaurs? But we're all like, we're subjected to that at the moment, you know, so... I mean, and we are them and they are us, right? I mean, yeah. I, I really want to be clear that I think, we're, you know, we're all the same. We get exposed to different cultures and, and we do make choices, right? I mean, I, I do think that there is some free will involved in there as well. I think that's one of the opportunities and one of the excitements around around psychedelics, right? I mean, it is can be the great equalizer, right? I mean, it can, it can take people in a short amount of time to have an experience and get to a point of reflection that they would never choose to do 
And then also they would never they would never take the time necessary to get there. I mean, I think that's one of the things that you're hearing about with some of the people involved in the MAP studies. And, and I've heard, you know, a couple of different veteran stories working with MDMA and PTSD. You know, it is it, I, one one guy was talking about it. he's like, listen, I've been in psychotherapy for 20, 30 years. It, I've been I've been in the system getting good therapy. It's not this. I have not been homeless this whole time. I haven't I, I have been resourced, you know, to some extent after going through this this three months process of doing the MDMA and having, you know, the very intensive psychotherapy, I mean, that, that did, you know, more for me than 10 or 15 years of psychotherapy, right? And so I think it's important to note that we have the possibility of, of just striking potency with these medications that I think maybe that's the hope, right? I mean, you know, certainly not putting it in the water and, and not doing things to people without their knowledge, but also creating opportunities where people can maybe have these life-changing experiences and then, you know, setting it up so that we've got, you know, good food, good love and, and good integration to help them, you know, going on that path. I mean, it, it's it's a gentle nudge, right? I don't yeah. I, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, in my estimation, there's there's a there's a way to do it other than that. Right. I mean, obviously, there is uh, many pathways to it and, and people ripen at different times, you know. And, Absolutely. Um, but what, what would you say to like critics that basically say like hey that's just basically like doping like in sports you know you're like cheating you should do it the hard way and like the you know work hard and like suck it up and you know basically do it naturally if it's that's a great question i think if if someone is 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 suffering and there's a way to cheat to help them in that suffering i'm all for it right i mean i think that um I think that if we're talking about cheating to become a more realized, functional, healthy human, I'm all for it. And so I, I think that um, I think that that would be the first thing that I would say, right? If we can set up systems, and it's not just psychedelics, right? It's the same thing with like cannabis. I mean, cannabis is a wonderful plant, incredibly potent, can be used to help so many people with so many different issues, but it's not a panacea, right? I mean, and that's that's also the way that I work with all of these things. Um, and again, very much above ground. I mean, I work with patients in cannabis chiefly. Um, I don't work with any psychedelics professionally. Um, and but I think the key po- component of that is um, recognizing that if we can bring people into a relationship with these plants and they can start to heal and start to feel better, um, let's do it. Right. right and right. and I think that um, it's always important. I mean, one of the things in cannabis medicine, the mantra that we always come back to is start low and go slow. Right. It's this idea that that and this is the beauty of the scientific experiment. Right. We can we can gain the knowledge of being able to hopefully reproduce experiences um, in such a predictable way that, that that we know that people are going to most likely have a very powerful one of the most powerful experiences of their life and then hopefully through integration turn that into something that's you know unbelievably positive for them yeah it's really cool because earlier you hooked me up to this backpack that had like some sort of speaker in it and as well as the headphones and you played some music and that was like psychedelic in itself i mean it was it was crazy because it was like auditory and i'm hearing impaired so i can't hear out of my right ear that well i have a hearing aid in my left yeah even with my my what would be considered my normal hearing right now I could I could feel you could feel it this the sound through my body yeah no it's cool I mean I think that's one of the one of the um, you know 
possibilities of, of the technology and working um, in with you know wearables and health tech is that you know we have the ability to again we're talking about inducing state changes right it is that opportunity to get out of out of that normal um, you know uh, treadmill of, yeah, my, of regular like consciousness and, yeah, yeah and, and, and I think that you know and there are plenty of ways to do that that's I mean that's you know that's that you can give that to kids right, right. and this idea of, of um, helping people kind of step outside to get perspective right that's really what we're talking about this idea of like here I am here I am in my narrow you know focused vision and I can take a deep breath and sometimes that's using plant-based medicine sometimes that's using sound sometimes that's just using um, you know our internal uh, processes I can take a deep breath and go into this wide angle place right instead of instead of me being focused pinpoint which sometimes being laser focused is necessary but then having that ability to take a deep breath and open up to our surroundings um i mean i'm all for doing things safely um but really opening up the the pandora's box of of the cornucopia of of ways to do that right and whether that's through breath whether that's through psychotherapy whether that's through plant-based medicines whether that's through music right i mean this is I mean, a, a good rock concert is a yeah, state change, right? Yeah, or go and see like a 3D movie. Like, it's just like what's accepted by a society, right? Yeah. And then it's like, hey, hold on a sec. There's other aspects of looking outside of what's considered like legal, so to speak, Absolutely. just because certain people felt like uh, this is this is how it's got to be. But people are always having experiences, whether they they like it or not, and you know checking out for example because they're in a rat race sure and they're stuck and they're like on the weekend they just want to decompress so they're gonna go to the bars they're gonna drink sure. alcohol they're gonna like abuse whatever just to check out go see like uh binge watch a bunch of movies or yeah. netflix uh shows or something yeah so we're always like changing our states like you know to escape like get suffering from time memoriam right i mean this has been something that's going on forever it's just the rules are arbitrary right, right. um the rules are arbitrary uh based on culture there the rules also are arbitrary based on time i mean there are shifts and, and there are changes with this and that's why i think that you know uh, the beauty of doing these studies and being so and and you know and cannabis is is here now we need we need to change something nationally so that we're actually able to do better quality better powered studies um, but you know in California we really have the uh, ability to do I mean what's happening with cannabis and being able to, to treat so many different conditions um, and do it safely too I mean I think again I can't underscore the importance of as long as people are working um, with with someone um, you know Again, in the medical context, who has training, um, you know, we're really able to, to do things and explore things in a very safe manner. And, and um, you know, I, I, I really encourage that. Yeah, absolutely. With the suicide rates just skyrocketing, right? It's just... I mean, we need help. Yeah. Right? I mean, we're, 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 we're not doing things. I mean, we, we're doing a lot of things, you know, correctly, but there are a lot of things that we're not doing well. And, and whether that be psychiatric things or, you know, type two diabetes, I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, it is not infectious. You are not born with it, right? Type one you are, but you are not born with type two diabetes. It's something that I like to say we eat and don't exercise our way into, right? Um, and it's also something that we can through lifestyle and diet generally, exercise and, and eat our way out of, right? I mean, there are 
complexities of adverse childhood events, hormonal things. But I mean, there are a lot of, of, of people that if we can change their access to healthy food, give them safe places to exercise, I mean, can get better and can heal, right? And, and I think that that's all of our responsibility to create those opportunities for people as much as possible in whatever realm it is, whether it be through straight food or, or using plant-based medicine or, you know, roller coaster rides, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we guess, uh, where I, I wouldn't guess, but I know for sure that like exercise has a huge effect on our mood, right? And then sleep, eating better, you know, making better choices with yeah. food, which kind of becomes a little confusing because there's oh, so many different diets out there, whether it's like paleo, keto, like people are like fighting each other, yeah. even when they're, you know, it's like we're all different. So what, what do you recommend in terms of that? And then also, um, you know what about like like going outside like getting out getting off like unplugging off the technology too and yeah i mean so i would start with the food thing first um there is not a perfect diet for everyone we're all different um we also need uh, different things based on where we are in our state of health um what i think is so great about like the whole biohacking community the end of one experimentation that's really cropped up in the last 10 or 15 years um is the ability to test it out, right? I mean, you know, changing your diet um, should and, and, and is typically a safe uh, intervention. And so, you know, see how you do on a higher fat diet, right? Something that's more around um, uh, the ketogenic diet and do it for at least 30 days. I, I don't I don't ever recommend a change for less than that because you really need to have that habit be instilled. So psychologically, you can see how it feels, but also physically really see. But see how you do on a higher fat diet. Um, you know, there are also people that are doing more of a, of a vegan diet that's got a much higher carb ratio that have been doing it for years and do wonderfully on it, right? There are some people that stay on that diet for a while and then they're like, you know, I, it tastes good, but like this isn't working for me. And so then they go back and transition into paleo and find that having, um, you know, more uh, uh, higher proteins works for them. You've got the lectin, you know, the anti-lectin diet from uh, Dr. Gundry. And I think that, that, you know, for myself, I find that to be very fun, right? Um, personally, like doing a lot of experimentation. And then I think taking that information and then, you know, again, from, from what I do, working with patients to sort of investigate, right? But it's not a light switch, right? It takes a process and it takes um, some time to really see what works best. But it's, it is that idea of reflection, writing down what you're eating. How, how is that affecting your mood, right? This is where sometimes using the technology in a mood app, okay, well, you know, two hours after a high carb meal, I don't feel so good. I feel, you know, foggy. I don't feel very refreshed. Whereas, you know, if I have my bulletproof coffee in the morning and I'm working on intermittent fasting and take 14 or 16 hours every day where I'm giving my body a break from eating, I feel a lot better, you know? I, I think I've been doing this long enough to recognize that that there isn't one answer and that people have different experiences, right? And so I, I really encourage people to get the education themselves, find people to work with, um, and then go from there. Um, I think, what was the second part of it? The uh, Yeah, it's completely blanked out. God, gone. <laughs> beginner's mind. Yeah. Tabula rasa, fresh slate. Yeah, yeah. I guess, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, like the lowest hanging fruit for like a lot of people, especially people that don't have the financial resources to, let's say, eat organic all the time right. or buy all these 
biohacking tools which i think are a little extraneous like there's yeah. the most simple things that we have like uh, apparently breathing you yeah. lose like 70 percent of your waste products just from breath not yeah. from shitty not from like urine <laughs> it comes from breathing yeah and then you know sleeping is free you know that yeah. improves hormone profile you can burn a shit ton of fat just from getting that full night's rest no, sleep absolutely and you're optimizing, right? You're, I mean, if you're eating well, sleeping well, you know, relating well with other people, have a healthy sex life, that's also optimizing your existence. And then you're more impervious to these insults that come in, right? And so that's where really building up from the core, I think, is so important. So low-hanging fruit, I mean, and, 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 you know, I think the starter with this is certainly sleep, is recognizing that everybody needs a very amount of sleep. I don't, I don't, I've never met anybody who actually, when you look at, at their long-term performance, their hormones, that does well in five hours a night, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, really starting to journal that and seeing how, how, how you do, right? And I think as much as we can, you know, tie in with chronobiology and circadian rhythms and recognize that, you know, maybe some people can stay up till three o'clock in the morning every night. I don't think it's probably the healthiest That's, thing yeah, for you, right? Outliers. So. Absolutely. And so yeah. if that is you, well, let's try a month where you really try to tuck in by 10 or 11 and get, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep a night and see how you do. Right. I mean, so much of this, it really entails um, someone listening to their own experience and to their own body. And so I think that's one thing to do, you know, setting setting a bedtime. Right. Coming back to uh, what we did when we were kids and really trying to be consistent with that. And again, do it. I, the 30 days is, you know, 30 60, 100 days is great. I think 30 days is really the minimum. And journaling it, tracking it, right? Whether that be tracking it with your with your pen and paper or tracking it with some some wearable or some health tech, um, I, I, I think that that's the first place to start. You know, the other thing with food, whether, you know, an experiment, try the elimination diet, try to go gluten-free, right? See how you feel with these things. I think from a cost perspective, you know, it is, I mean, there was a great book um, that came out a couple years ago that it was a woman that that um, that took uh, uh, what people could get on the f- on on food stamps, right? About one hundred and twenty dollars, I think, is about what it averaged out to nationally. Um, and doing, she basically had a four dollar a day food plan. You'd have to Google it; it's out there, definitely. Like four dollar a day, you know, uh, food stamp diet, and it was going to, you know, it was educating people around bulk buying, right? Going to, you know, Safeway or a health food store and and getting things in bulk, right? And then being able to um, come back and and cook them and getting fresh greens, right? Growing greens in your house, right? Starting a, a, a windowsill herb garden, right? I mean, we can we can do this. You can you can get, uh, uh, um, you know, and there's a lot of DIY plant. stuff. You yeah. Can, yeah. You can go online. You know, you can get the woolly, which I think is pretty expensive, or you can get online and find out where you can get some felt and 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 some rivets and do that and start to grow food yourself. Um, nothing healthier than that, right? At home, um, I think it's also uh, the idea. One of the biggest obstacles in my experience with eating well is time, right? And so um, I think a lot of people just don't feel like they have time to to create that nourishment, and so and, and being tired as well, and yeah. being tired. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things. I mean, you look at like the sales of Instant Pot, right? I mean, they are through the roof because this is a way to actually still prepare things in a healthy way, but it's fairly no touch, right? It's choppy. I, I, I have one. I can't believe how well they work, it's right? It's so amazing. It's like boom, boom, boom. Takes you 10 or 15 minutes of prep. You stick it in. You come back in 30 minutes and like... You know, you don't have to stir it. You're not doing anything, and you're eating, and it's very wholesome, right? Um, and and inexpensive, right? And so I think that that's the main thing. It's like you know, it's like 
growing what you can, you know, and some people don't live in cities. Some people can really do that, right? Putting some planter boxes in their backyard and, and growing more food. Um, you know, certainly um, uh, uh, reaching out and seeing if there are food banks, right? I mean, for two people that, that are really um, having, uh, um, you know, stressors around um, just getting access at all, living in food deserts, uh, you know, that's a start. I think the bulk food, getting a slow cooker. I mean, going to going to Goodwill, I've done this on numerous occasions where you can get a practically brand new slow cooker for five or $10. Well, there you go. You can make your bone broth in that if you're doing that. You can you can um, have a soup that's kind of always on the ready, you know, for the day and, and continue to get nourished. And so I... I, I, I yeah, you mentioned like Craigslist, all these yeah. places where you can buy like Absolutely. pretty unused things for pretty cheap. Right? Absolutely. No, and I run, I, I, I uh, do two days a week of like urban underserved work, which is one of the more satisfying things that I love to do and have an acupuncture clinic there. But I also run diabetes groups and like, you know, getting people to realize that, listen, this is, you don't have to be um, wealthy. Money always helps, right? But there are ways to get a slow cooker, right? Maybe get a pressure cooker on Craigslist and be able to then, you know, I mean, this is the wonderful thing in the internet, getting online, like healthy, you know, vegan, healthy paleo recipes to be able to do that at home. And, you know, it typically, uh, you know, I mean, a pound of rice lasts you a lot more than, than, than one meal. And I mean, it's a couple dollars even for organic. Right. And so there are ways to, to do this, um, that, that we, that I, I don't think we should start with that excuse. Let's, let's start with going out and trying to, to buy the bulk, trying to do things, um, you know, on the, on the cheap, but, but, but on the healthy too. Quality. Yeah. Quality and seeing where we go. And, and, you know, I mean, I think when you can't buy organic, then you buy local as possible. Right. I mean, there's, there's a whole way to kind of go through that process and you do your best, right? And, and you know, I think that, that one of the things that happens when you start nourishing yourself, right, then you start being able to be more healthy, right? Then you maybe can go out and get a different job. Maybe you can have a different quality of your relationships. And then when you're there, then you're able to maybe financially have, be in a different place, but you're also mentally be in a different place so that you can make healthier choices, right? I, one of my, I, I, I still continue to, to go to India to um, uh, practice yoga as often as I can. But one of my first trips, um, one of my uh, uh, friends who I've stayed in touch with is just a beautiful soul, Nick Evans, um, was living in India. He basically, he had had cancer and was at that point of like, this is, I got to make a big change or I'm not going to be able to make it, right? And so um, really set in motion um, a lot of decisions in his life. And one of them was to go to India. And at that time, the yoga um, where I practice in Mysore was really expensive, right? And, and much more expensive than probably any other place to go and do yoga and he was like when I first got here I thought this was really expensive right but as I practiced six days a week day in day out you know after months and months of doing this I got to the point where this is one of the cheapest things I do this used to be expensive and now it's cheap right this idea that when we find something that really turns us on and keeps us healthy we are able to make changes so that we can do it right and I think that's so important right yes the irony of it is because you get more productive when you actually put more time into exercising yeah. getting sleep eating right and like let's say journaling and learning about yourself yeah and and it's like yeah that takes time but the amount of time that you gain from that is like it's like exponential it's amazing absolutely and i think they've done tests even with people in cramming right we always kind of thank god every every last minute i can i can milk into studying for a test even if i only get three hours of sleep that's got to be better and and you know it it 
Absolutely. Having a good night's sleep is one of the, one of the, one of the best markers for performance. Right. And so, but it takes a little bit of a leap of faith, right? I mean, that's the ego doesn't want that. The ego says, I've got to keep going, got to keep going, got to keep going. And so we really need to, to take that opportunity and to some degree, take that risk of like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to look at this differently. I'm going to see if there's another way to approach it. Um, but clearly good food, you know, healthy, good, clean water, good clean air um a good night's sleep i i I, that's the best place to start yeah sunlight yeah yeah absolutely we didn't touch on that dirt go nature yeah all All of it like really cheap things and quite honestly i mean the things that we that we did you know that were our only choice a couple hundred years ago right i mean i think michael pollan in his book uh food rules had this thing um you know other than eat food mostly plants not too much it was like don't eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognize which you know, sounds, sounds so quaint and, and, you know, a little bit funny, but it's also true. I mean, I think that even, even when we think we're eating healthy and we're eating healthy processed food and you look at that label, that stuff's made in a food lab, right? That is not from the earth. And, and sometimes just making those very simple, I mean, that's the irony of this. It's like we have, we as a society are training all these medical professions, um, professionals to, to then help with people with so much, you know, like in the context of type two diabetes, it is get good sleep, eat good food, exercise, you know, have quality relationships, manage your stress. I mean, that's really the way to, to not only prevent, but treat it. Um, and it's, it's what, you know, we were doing a couple hundred years ago, assuming there wasn't an active war going on. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. And, um, you know, the ability to like frame like situations better, like when they're a lot of stress in your life, you can actually just take the reframe. Yeah. Reframe. And then, move from there instead of like be reactory and then you have a community so like changing your environment like will probably be a huge win for a lot of people if they like upgrade their peer group like you know sad to say like sometimes you do have to get away from like you know negative family members and friends that are like you know basically like teasing you for this new kind of lifestyle that you're living but you know you think about like how how much more you want out of life out of yourself and like how better you're going to become more enhanced you you know no absolutely and i think that that's a, a great point that um that that it's hard that's a big choice and it and it takes um a lot of determination and follow through to really um be something and go in a direction different than than what society had planned for us right and and it's not easy and so i think that you know those of us that blessed with the ability to do that that's all also our responsibility to go and and help the people that that that's going to be a little bit harder to do right because right. i think we all have the ability to change, right? Obviously. And I think that, that helping each other, right? Um, not only uh, is there, you know, I, I think that I wouldn't even say that it's altruistic, right? Because I think, I mean, one of the most satisfying things personally and selfishly for me is being of service, right? I mean, I, I don't do well if I'm not in a place at least, you know, not necessarily every day, but if I go six months, you know, that's like, if you won the lottery, what would you do? I would keep working because if I don't, I don't do well. Like right, I, right. I mentally am, am destabilized by just having an overabundance of pleasure. Everybody's different, but like a hundred percent, I know that that's the case with me. Yeah. And so, 
you know, uh, this comes back to, too, you know, the insight and spending time with yourself um, and seeing where you're at and, and staying yeah, there's engaged. Some, there's something about, like, helper's high, right? That's, like, another almost psychedelic feeling that you get when you, you are, like, in service and, yeah. and, and giving and sharing of your gifts in the world, you know? Absolutely. And I think everybody that, that's involved with service knows that, right? It's like, it's great, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm helping people, and I'm glad that, that you know, maybe there's even some acknowledgement of that. But I think that, that they also know that, like, I, I need to do this, right? This is, this is I, I need to do this to stay healthy. I need to do this to stay engaged. And so, um, you know, we're all in community. No, no man or woman's an island. And I think that that's, uh, you know, we can't ever forget that. Yeah, so even like meditation can be like a drug in itself and be addictive and you isolate yourself. And, yeah, you know. absolutely. I mean, I think the, it's it's quite all right to go to the cave. You just got to remember to come out. Yeah, exactly. Come <laughs> back into the world. A um, couple things left. Sure. Um, what, uh, what do you recommend for people that like fall off the wagon? Like, you know... Like, like with they, alcohol or, or, or anything, or just, like, or just like, like starting a new the, habit right, or it. just like, oh shit, man, I like yeah. totally like messed up this weekend and like, you know, sure. like beat themselves up for it. I think the, the first thing is forgiveness. And, 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 and I'm not joking about that. I mean, it's really this idea of, you know, it, you got to have self-love and self-compassion, right? And so recognizing that, um, that we are always going to stumble, right? I mean, this is going to be a part of all of us that are alive and breathing. And, and until that stops, there are going to be processes where we need redirection and, and to reintegrate. I think the other part about that, too, is, is when you stumble, you get up, you know, dust yourself off, look around, and get back on the proverbial horse, right? And get back on your path. And, 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 and recognize that it is not a straight line, right? And I think that's the main thing. It's the commitment to continuing is, is, is the key. That's cool. And um, I asked Dr. Dan Engel uh-huh. about this question. Sure. Do we live in a virtual simulation? Whew. Um, I'd love to hear. I have to I have to go back and listen to what he said. I'm sure it was brilliant. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't. I would have to ask one of my other simulators if, if if we are or not. I mean, I think the whole like multiverse and this concept of of so many different realities going on. I think it's as good a theory as any. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I think I've got to get more time in the float tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because uh, you know I like what you're saying earlier about the default mode network. Sure. It's like this is the the best theory or best uh understanding of what all this is all about you know this experience being human yeah and uh but we would never really know for sure just like we don't know what goes on after death i mean if i look at a dead body uh, at a funeral like it almost doesn't seem like the person that i know that just passed away it's like oh that's just a a shell a meat bag so to speak and yeah so it's like but i can't prove that it's just a feeling that i have and i I totally understand where like you know the whole atheist side of things or you know the um materialist the the materialist existentialist type of philosophies like oh i could i could hold space for that mindset and so the only thing that we know is like this right yeah I mean, and I, I think that that's, I, I, I think that, that, that science is wonderful. And I think that using it as a framework for understanding, I think is the best thing that, that we've come across. Um, I think that if that leads us to a place that we stop wondering and stop being curious and, and stop 
stop, you know, realizing that there is an unknown that we can't know. And certainly the ego can't know all of this, right? And so I think as long as, as we stay open, um, I think that's a great place to start. And, and um, you know, it's a wild ride. And I, I think that, um, that uh, you know, learning, moving forward, all these things, right, that we're coming back to, eating well, sleeping well, having good relationships, um, are really the foundation of, of where we start. Where we take that is all going to be individually different. Um, but I, I think that um, clearly this is not the only reality. And I think that, um, you know, using different ways to access other states of reality not only um, is, is fascinating, um, I think it also helps um, you know, soften the harder parts of, of, every, of everyday consciousness and reality. Yeah, that's beautiful. Any like final thoughts uh, or things you want to share? Yeah, I mean, I think I think just again, um, you know, stay curious, stay engaged, and and continue helping people. That's cool, man. <laughs> uh, where can people like find out about you? Sure. So, um, I, I Harry McElroy MD um, dot com is one. Uh, Origins Medicine is where I, I work a lot with Chinese medicine and functional medicine. Um, I know we took a, a trochee, and I think our tongues are blue right now. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm I'm working with a great group of uh, of people. I think I've been on your podcast too with um, health optimization with Home, um, uh, and that's another place too. Um, all those places and um, are great places. To, to, to sort of to check in and see what I'm up to. Awesome. Dr. Harry McElroy, thank you so yeah, much, Thank brother. you so much. Yeah. All right. Awesome, Tom. <laughs> Take care. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to that last episode with Dr. Harry McElroy. Such a pleasure to have him. Full of information, wisdom, knowledge about, you know, how we can better live and have a greater and awesome life. Um, also, all that information in regards to plant medicines like cannabis and psychedelics that can really help people overcome uh, some hard hardships in life and, and mental suffering as, you know, suicide is just skyrocketing these past few years. And uh, the research is now indicating that these are therapeutic tools that can be used for helping healing the psychological issues that many of us suffer on a day-to-day basis. And there's just no shame in asking for help if you are someone that is struggling and is in a dark place. You know, there's so many resources that are available with many uh, therapists, trained professional therapists. doesn't hurt to reach out to some friends and family and let them know where you're at and maybe they can help get you some help. And also there's the National Suicide Hotline if you're really at that rock bottom place and, you know, it's just it's just hard to even consider living another day. We'll reach out and call that number because there's people here that really do care and and want want you to stick around. So on that note, speaking of brain health, we are sponsored by DropAnFBomb.com. And uh, they make delicious macadamia-based nut butters, really good fats that are healthy for our brain, our nervous system. And so use the promo code FLOWREAL, F-L-O-W-R-E-A-L, on DropAnFBomb.com. 
and you'll get 15% off of your first order. So thank you again for listening, everybody, and look forward to seeing you on the next Hangry and Horny podcast. Mwah!